Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hi everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I am a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to Michael Benson, the author of Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick, Arthur C. Clarke, and the Making of a Masterpiece. It's a fascinating book, a fascinating read about an amazing film, uh, as you'll hear in the conversation. Certainly one of my favorite ever films, I think. Uh, and Michael is an expert, so he's a perfect person to talk to about this. Uh, one quick note, the technical, there were some technical issues during the recording, so this a part where the conversation is a little bit interrupted and the actual quality of the sound isn't up to my usual high standard not my standard is not particularly high to begin with but anyway i hope it doesn't distract you from the conversation in fact i'm sure it won't because the quality of the conversation is as such that you'll be so interested in it you'll be you'll be writing me emails saying what problems were there i didn't know it's any problems and that's a good thing if you like the episode please remember to subscribe to like to uh spread the word on twitter and facebook and social medias generally um this is our christmas episode as well so do remember uh to have a look through previous episodes and to look through this episode and maybe uh you know you might want to give some film books as christmas presents i would heartily encourage you to do so i have actually got a store uh in bookstore.com uh, that's named after the the podcast and you should be able to find all the books that we talk about there if you order through there i get a, a tiny percentage of several cents or something so several pence so uh, if you want to do that you can do that as well and happy christmas
let's just <laughs> let's also say happy Christmas. Uh, why not? Happy Christmas indeed. And uh, I hope you enjoy the conversation. You know, it's interesting you mention that because um, we staged an entire EU Christmas concert here at the cathedral in Ottawa. My wife is a senior EU official. And um, it was a fantastic event, several TV cameras, choirs singing every uh, Christmas carols in every every European language, perfectly timed, beautiful location, one hour for carols from every country, you know, VIPs in the audience, blah, 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 blah. It was all supposed to be then uh, broadcast on Christmas Eve on TV here um, on Rogers Cable. And then two days later, we heard that something happened and the camera, we had the sound, but not the picture. I have no idea. They had students shooting it. The whole thing had to be restaged (laughs) Um, in a smaller church. The whole thing was just ridiculous. Anyway, those things do happen, but not today. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Are you in uh, the Dolomites? Yeah, yeah. I'm just just a little bit shy of the Dolomites, just a little bit south. The town is called Feltre. Is the is the closest town? If you ever drink prosecco wine, yeah. Well, I don't, but um, I, I lived in Ljubljana for a long time, so I was very close. And a friend of mine has a small hotel up in uh, you know up in the Dolomites. Uh, it's near uh, Madonna di Campiglio ski area. Yeah, I mean, it's. I, in fact, I just uh, jumped in the car to go and get some stuff, and and there's a there's a, a particular corner that if you you turn around the corner of the mountain, and it's like entering Narnia. It just suddenly everything is white, and it's just completely snowed over. We've got a little bit of snow here, but there it's just like the trees are frozen and will be for the next three months. You know? Right. Well, I'm in Canada. What can I tell you? <laughs> ah, yeah, of course. Yeah, you've got. Are you, are you, are you full of snow at the moment? Yeah, but it's sunny. Are you through and through Canadian? Are you? No, no, I'm an American. My wife is the EU ambassador to Canada. We're here on a diplomatic mission. I'm from New York. Oh, right. Are you from London? No, I'm from Liverpool. Well, actually, I'm from Cumbria originally, but Liverpool is sort of the, the place most people have heard of, and I was at university there for about 10 years, so... Um, yeah, I couldn't get out. It was amazing. I was having too much fun, so I just stayed. I was going to say, you got your undergraduate degree after after 10 years. That's good. Well done. No, no, no. I just I just, I just, just kept, kept kept adding degrees. <laughs> oh, okay. Good for you. So you're a PhD or what? Yeah, PhD. The, the, I've got a master's in romantic poetry as well, to, to, to my name. But it was just purely because uh, I like the pubs there and, uh, and the music scene and all that sort of What's stuff. What's your doctorate so. in? Uh, my doctor doctorate is in English literature, and I I studied Percy Shelley, the Romantic poet. This is amazing. I mean, you know, uh, a friend of mine sent me a link today to a video taken by the Parker Solar Probe, the NASA mission, which went into the cornea of the sun and and documented its journey. First time we've sent anything into the sun, the sun outer outer envelope of the sun. And I started thinking about Robert Heinlein's The Golden Apples of the Sun. And the golden apples of the sun is a line from Shelley. And I and so I dug out the story and I sent it off to him today. And I was reading, you know, um, I was reading some Shelley today and everything. So speaking of romantic poetry, I'm an, I'm an English major, too, by the way. Right. Well, there you go. No doctorate, though. Well, don't worry. I won't lord it over you with my. Uh... <laughs> Just try, pal. Just try. If anybody says in a plane, you know, is there a doctor on the plane? Is there a doctor? I don't I don't swan up 
with my with my my grasp of literary theory. Yeah, right. <laughs> not not particularly good grasp of literary theory, it has to be said. Well, it was all those pubs that you keep on talking about. Oh my god, yeah. The pub was at least there were two pubs. One was called the Oxford and the other was called the Cambridge. So, you know, I always like to think I, I did spend a lot of time in Oxford and Cambridge, just not the <laughs> not the actual right ones. Nice, nice, nice. Uh, Listen, congratulations on the book, Space Odyssey. Um, I absolutely, I've got my copy here, my well, my well-read copy. Oh, excellent. Well, thank you uh, very much. Yeah, I mean, 2001: Space Odyssey for me personally is probably uh, one of my is one of my definitely one of my top three, maybe top two films. It's sort of, and whether it's number one at any given point often depends on you know which film I'm watching. What are the others? Well, I I think Casablanca is right is is there is is one of the top two slash three and maybe the good the bad and the ugly. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah. Love both of them. Yeah. I mean, it's it. I think of them in this in the in the way. I'm not sure. I think people formulate this question a little bit differently. But if I had you know three hours left to live and someone said you've got one last film to watch, what do you want to watch? I think it would be one of those three. <laughs> It's interesting. So if you had three hours left to live, you would actually spend some of it. You would spend a chunk of it watching a film that speaks highly of you, sir. Yeah, I mean, what 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 else is there to do? <laughs> <laughs> well, what else is there to do that slots into that time anyway? Yeah, well, I don't know, man. Um, that's an interesting uh, way of looking at things, and certainly. I don't actually need to see 2001 again. It's I can play it in my head. I've seen it so many times. And, you know, having written the book about it, I know what was going on behind the camera. I, you Obviously, you can see what's going on in front of the camera. So I like to think I have a kind of 360 degree view, at least to the extent that was possible with archival research I could do and the people I could speak to who are still alive, you know. What was your first experience of the film, though? When did you first come across it? Uh, I, get, I get into that a bit in the forward, uh, the first chapter actually of the book i was six years old you know and uh my mom uh was a uh science fiction fan and uh and took me to see it um and you know at age six my god you know you're rather open to everything and it completely blew me away and i i will always remember following her down the sidewalk in the bright sun afterwards because it was a matinee screening asking her what did it mean but what did it mean and as i say in my opening chapter to her credit she answered i i don't know i don't know rather than saying something reassuring or i don't know you know so then i saw it many times after that but it really did kind of uh impact you know in a sense impacted my life's trajectory because you know i do work well outside of cultural histories or what have you or you know um, um, you know I, i've been producing for example planetary landscapes using raw data from nasa missions and and staging large large you know touring exhibitions of that kind of content i probably wouldn't have been doing that if i hadn't been made aware at age six that um, the content coming from our deep space missions may just as well be understood as being a chapter in the history of art as of science um, 2001 made that kind of stuff implicitly clear you know that kind of idea wow yeah i mean that i i, I think i was similarly sort of similarly young maybe not quite that young but i remember watching it on bbc2 and i think it showed over christmas it was one of the big films that were going to show during the christmas 
week week or two weeks of great tv that traditionally that's what that's one of those british traditions we have great tv at christmas apparently unfortunately though the best way to see it first time is of course on a huge screen but uh not to you know not to cast any aspersions on your experience tell me about your feeling when you first saw it and how old were you well it, it wasn't it w- will have been about eight or nine it were probably not as young as six and i remember i probably i think there were two viewings that i remember watching it first with my mum and dad my family and us all sitting down to watch this big science fiction film and of course expecting star wars and and then as as happens in many a christmas sort of family viewing people drifting off as it went on and on and on and, and it seemed it seemed endless and i was think i i was i have this memory of myself although this might be self-aggrandizing of sort of sitting there and insisting come on this is really good this is really and then i watched it about two years later when i was a little bit older and a bit more and being really uh, really blown away by it, but already primed to watch it because I thought this is this difficult film that nobody else seems to get. And so I'm going to get it. And and I, we were at, at my uncle's house, uh, my auntie and my uncle's. And, uh, you know, it was like a family thing. And I'd already said to everyone, look, this film is on at this, you know, this is before video recorders and stuff. This film is on at this time. I have to have the television. Yeah, so everybody was else, well, we're fine. We're all having a meal anyway, so it doesn't matter. So I went off into this little room and watched it on my own. And 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 again, was sort of knocked out by it. And from then on, it was the first video I ever bought, but I only recently saw it on the big screen. I saw it on the big screen uh, in Cannes when it was introduced by Christopher Nolan, uh, among others. Uh, I think uh, Christiana Kubrick was there as well. So yeah, I mean, so it's been this... The film, uh, after after sort of I, I forced my family out of the room so I could watch this 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 sort of masterpiece. It it was it became a sort of artifact for me almost that it was this um uh magical sort of it it wasn't just a film, it was it was like it was cinema itself, it was all of cinema, you know, which I think I'm stealing. That's that sounds like somebody else said that. You know, it's like music, right? You're influenced by everything. Let me say this, you know, you said earlier that uh, this hard to understand, difficult, complicated film was dot, dot, dot. Um, mm. That difficult to understand, complicated film was the highest grossing film of 1968. It's the only time Stanley Kubrick ever achieved that. It also altered the course of Hollywood. It marked the switch from the Western. It marked the switch from the Western to big budget science fiction as the Hollywood, you know, main vehicle of big budget production. So despite its the risks it took, the nonverbal nature of it, the lack of explanation to the audience of what was going on, you know, the necessity that audiences pay attention with their eyes, as Kubrick put it in 68 in an interview, despite all that, it became a huge, 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 huge success, you know, um, which was not reflected in the Oscars early the next year, uh, but certainly was reflected in the history of film. So your your gut instinct there about, you know, about how it's cinema itself, I think, was borne out, you know, and that's not necessarily always the case that commercial success <laughs> obviously um, signifies artistic and critical success. But in this case, it did. And yeah, it seems such um, a kind of unlikely film because it's, it, you know, the, the Kubrick has had a successful career up until that point. 
he's you know he's made significant films he's definitely but i mean it's not it's not it's not like he's made Avatar or or some huge commercial success, which has allowed him this, uh, the sort of, well, not exactly the blank check that he gets, but he certainly seems to get a lot of artistic freedom uh, considering how big the project sort of becomes. Well, there are two reasons for that. Spartacus, which right. was, uh, got multiple Oscars, uh, and Strangelove, huge critical success mm. and also financial commercial. So, uh, I actually have a different opinion than what you just expressed. Um, he really had proved himself with the big budget mega production with Spartacus. And then he proved himself critically multiple times, you know, also paths of glory. So um, that's why O'Brien, O'Brien, who's his first name is going to occur. Yeah. Um, Robert O'Brien, of course, Robert O'Brien, president and CEO of MGM. Uh, that's why he felt like he could take a bet on, on Stanley Kubrick. He was a young guy, but he had shown, you know, significant achievements already. An amazing, amazing moxie and sort of self-confidence as well. Well, I mean, that moxie and self-confidence revealed itself all throughout. But certainly at the end, when there was a lot of pressure, I think, that Kubrick was putting on himself, and certainly the studio was putting on him, to make the film more um, understandable to your average Joe which resulted in Stanley asking Arthur Clark, who he collaborated with throughout, to write voiceover uh, narration blocks of text for voiceover narration for the film to explain what was going on to the audience. And Clark was doing that up until December 67. And then finally, Stanley had the courage of his convictions or whatever cliche you want to use. I mean, he uh, realized, no, this is a nonverbal experience and it should be that. And, uh, and yanked it, yanked, they never recorded them, by the way. Uh, and um, Arthur was very upset. And um, so he, Stanley Kubrick was brave enough to have spent all that money, <laughs> MGM money, <laughs> taken four years to make the thing, uh, you know, and, you know, to launch it with no explanation whatsoever beyond the dawn of man title card and, you know, Jupiter six months later and so on um, with no title card in that radical jump between prehistory and and the near future, the year 2001 with the bone and the, the match cut, which people mistakenly describe as a jump cut. It's a match cut uh, between the bone and the spacecraft <laughs> match cut, of course, meaning that there's something in the frame at a certain angle and you find something in the next shot that matches that angle. I think one of the things that I really enjoyed about your book, and I mean, I I sort of have read a lot about 2001 in the past, and I've watched a lot of documentaries and, and listened to the various sort of commentaries that you get on on the, the, the DVDs and whatnot. Um, and I've read the Arthur C. Clarke novel and, and several of the sequels, but it felt like the book was very much sort of set, set quite a few things to rights. So for instance, the thing that you said earlier about how much of a commercial success it is, for some reason in my head, I sort of had this myth that it wasn't that big a hit and it didn't do that well. And uh, and your, your book very much puts paid to that, um, that idea. Well, I can explain though why you had that feeling, right? Um, it was a disastrous launch. <laughs> um, <laughs> The film as previewed or actually as released, you know, to the critics and to uh, initial audiences was longer. 
than the final cut. Stanley Kubrick didn't see the full film with all the effect sequences cut into it until a week or so before the first preview screenings in, you know, the premiere in Washington, D.C., and then what I call the Kubrick premiere in New York City because Stanley wasn't at the Washington premiere. Um, he's, he saw it first with an audience in, in New York. He had no time to uh, evaluate the film at, you know, as from Alpha to Omega with all the shots in. His evaluation of it with an audience took place <laughs> surrounded by the VIP audience and the critics and everything else. So it was no mercy. There were sequences that he had that that he cut. I don't remember how minute how many minutes was cut. Uh, something like twelve, thirteen. Um, but it was significant material that gave the audience a sense of redundancy and. Um, you know, a kind of aimlessness. Um, so, for example, I mean, I can tell you what shots were cut. Um, just one of them, for example, was, uh, you know, you might remember the epic shot of the astronaut jogging in the centrifuge right after we see the exterior shot, meaning the you know, the shot of the spacecraft on its way to Jupiter, Jupiter oh. six months later. And then you see this extraordinary shot uh, uh, of an astronaut running in circles in this centrifuge and the camera follows him up and over and under and around. And it's just, you know, absolute tour de force um, achieved with no digital effects, of course, because they didn't exist at the time. And that's fantastic stuff. But then Stanley made the mistake of including almost the same shot with the other astronaut, Keir Delay. You know, so the first one was Gary Lockwood. And then, you know, that's where the audience basically started muttering to itself. And even they were even booing and hissing. This is I've heard this from uh, a person who was there and I wrote about it in the book, of course. So, you know, there was material in there that just kind of removed that suspension of disbelief that <laughs> you need to proceed in a film. And um, and so he cut that and and then it became. The most successful. So, but all the critics were merciless. I mean, not all of them. There was a good review in the New Yorker. There was a very, very good review in the Boston Globe. But the other critics were pretty merciless, even savage, even, you know, even putting down Stanley Kubrick, you know, personally. And so that's probably why you had that perception. I mean, did the the critics went after him because they sort of also saw that there was this sort of great grand sort of pretension in the in the movie as well, maybe? Uh, I don't see pretension in that film, although, you know, it's interesting. I just wrote an essay for a Library of America volume about Mad Magazine that's coming out next year. And it was about my experience as a kid reading Mad Magazine in the early 70s in Ankara, Turkey. We lived there because my father was a diplomat. And I remember the Mad parody of 2001, which is, you know, really, it's one of the good ones, you know, with the man apes bounding around the monolith. And, you know, they, at first they don't know if they're on planet, in the set of Planet of the Apes or, or, or you know, 2001 and, then, and so forth. So obviously there, there's stuff there that's ripe for parody. You know, but I don't find it to be a pretentious film in any way. No, no, that's not my that's not my valuation either. Uh, But I mean, there's a there's certainly an ambition there, and there's from the very first notes of the you know the Richard Strauss um, music that you have at the beginning. There's a there's a there's a grandeur and an unironic sort of sense of the epic, which uh, 
which I can see people got. I can I can see certain critics sort of having having a problem with. Well, incidentally, that music first plays over what people haven't necessarily grasped uh, is a lunar eclipse, because what you see mm. is the dark side of the moon, night side of the moon, and the camera rises and you see you, you see Earth uh, rising over the lunar horizon. This is 68, the same year that that was first seen by Apollo astronauts. The Apollo 8 crew saw it months later, that epic, you know, scene. Yeah. Uh, but beyond the Earth is the sun rising. And so you have a cosmic alignment of the kind that humanity has found mystical and powerful and disquieting and so forth and epic uh, since before recorded history. So and then later in the film, you have these alignments during key moments of the story. So, yeah, it's uh, it's you know, it's not ironic. It's not, you know, it's not skeptical. It's um, it's kind of trying to present the grandeur of the cosmos using 65 millimeter negative projected on 70 millimeter film, you know, as big and clean and rich as possible with that technology of the 60s. What I love as well, though, is you have, on the one hand, you have this huge sort of film that we receive that is done, that is a, you know, is a masterpiece, masterpiece, right, right from the get go, at least in, in my book. And then in your book, in the stories, there's this sense of real gradually finding the film, that the film is 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 not a sort of eureka moment. And there are so many different versions of almost every, you know, like when you see the monolith, you think, oh, of course it's a monolith. Of course it's black. That makes perfect sense. And then, of course, no, it took a long time to get there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, one reason I wanted to write this book is, you know, I'm, I was a filmmaker. I'm not really in that game anymore, but um, I was enough of a filmmaker to understand that behind every production there is a struggle to get it made every production and sometimes an epic struggle and um many stories and many individuals and you know and then and the auteur theory i have some sympathy for the auteur theory and certainly in the case of stanley kubrick i mean you know the film would not be what it is and if he hadn't exercised control uh kind of benevolent despot control over every aspect. But Kubrick, I've compared him to Miles Davis. Miles Davis also had control of his, complete control over his music, but he knew how to let his people, who were the best, play and solo and improvise, you know, jazz being a music of improvisation. And Stanley, likewise, knew how to find the right people who could put up with his you know, <laughs> exceedingly detail-oriented personality, his fanaticism, really, you know, but never a cruel, well, he could be cruel uh, later in life, especially, but usually it was, it was always at the service of the film, you know. Anyway, I guess my point is that, you know, you know, he knew how to work with people, he knew how to deploy various talents, he knew how to listen. He took the best material, the best ideas of, of Arthur Clarke, for example, who the book presents very much as a co-author and rightfully so of 2001, because 2001 was solidly grounded on Arthur Clarke's decades of work devising his own way of speaking about the cosmos in his novels and not just his novels, but also his nonfiction. He was a, one of the leading advocates for space exploration well before Sputnik in nonfiction essays and so on. He wrote an essay 
actually a scientific paper in 1945 proposing geostationary orbit as a perfect place to put satellites for communications. You know, I mean, he was a, quite a formidable character. He Of the two principals, he's the one I got to know, by the way. I, I never had the chance to talk to Arthur, uh, to Stanley, but I, I got to know Arthur. I, I spent quite a bit of time with him. I visited him in Sri Lanka three times. And in fact, he wrote the foreword to my first book. So Probably came to 2001 more from the angle of R.C. Clarke. You know, I read his book, Lost Worlds of 2001 as well. Good one. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, really, really interesting insight into it, as well as a lot of his other his other fiction. You know, uh, so th- so then I, I after two thousand and one, I you know you start I start watching other Kubrick movies, and and then that becomes then it's like oh, okay, who's this guy? Yeah. <laughs> right. In the sense also that um, Stanley had a kind of a cold and knowing and even sardonic way of looking at the world. You see that in Paths of Glory. You see that in Certainly, in, in, in uh, you, see, you see that in Clockwork Orange and, and you know, Strange Love. You see it all across his work. Um, Arthur brought a kind of utopian positivity to that equation, you know, and I've compared it to Lennon and McCartney, you know, where, I mean, the, the classic story is McCartney comes into the studio with lyrics. Um, it's getting better all the time. Everything's getting better. It's just better. It's getting better. And then, and then uh, Lennon added, it couldn't get much worse, right? <laughs> and so that's, the, that's your classic uh late 60s collaboration and so was so was stanley and arthur and speaking of lennon and mccartney i imagine you i don't want to get too far off topic here but uh, i've been watching that the new peter jackson extraordinary three-part series also filmed in 68 i might add revealing the dynamics of that collaboration extraordinarily well talking as well about the people involved in the in the making of the film of, of him delegating certain jobs i thought one of the stories that you brought out really interestingly was that of the actor who plays the main the main ape in the very first section dan richter yeah yeah exactly yes dan. yeah actually you know it's interesting that <laughs> that you mentioned dan richter right after i mentioned lennon and mccartney because dan went on to be john lennon and uh yoko ono's um kind of body servant. <laughs> I don't think he would object to that characterization. He's become a friend right after, you know, and he, he had a front row seat on the breakup of the Beatles. But Dan Richter is an extraordinary guy, extraordinary character. Um, he came along exactly when Stanley needed him desperately because it was just not working to stuff people into ape suits uh, and, 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 and then try to direct them in such a way that they would be understandable, believable, believable I should say, as proto-human proto-humans in Africa. Um, and Dan had been lead actor, lead mime, I should say, in the American Mime Theater in New York City in the mid-60s, um, then hit the road uh, like a lot of, like his entire generation, many people in his generation was influenced highly by On the Road and, uh, and others, other, uh, you know, the beats and, and the emerging, you know, hippie, let's say, counterculture. And uh, he hit the road, went to Japan, met Yoko, studied no theater, went on a kind of a trip through the world, you know, through Greece, and then ended up in London. Uh, a friend of his knew somebody uh, working at Borham Wood, which is where Stanley was struggling to make 2001, passed on that, passed on to Stanley, actually, that, that he knew of a mime, an American mime, who might have some ideas about ways to realize the man-apes. Um, Stanley asked for a meeting. Dan came in, um, was one of those people who was not intimidated by Stanley Kubrick, um, 
and did an, a fantastic audition for him where he became a pre-human man ape. He just incarnated, you know, the language of pre-human primate, you know, uh, extraordinarily well and, and got hired. And, you know, so, you know, I talk about the rest of the story in my book. Um, Dan was also, by the way, a heroin addict and uh, legally so in the British system, he met he got his legal dosage of amphetamines and and um, pharmaceutical grade heroin uh, every week or ten days or something from the UK system, <laughs> and he he performed the extraordinary feat of playing Moon Watcher, which is a a name only the only you only read in Arthur's Arthur's novel because you know it's not they don't have names in the film, but he was the lead man ape, the one who threw that bone, which produced the match cut, um, the leader of his, his band of man apes, the one who has the insight after experiencing the monolith, has this insight during one of those eclipses or celestial, uh, celestial uh, linings up um, that I described earlier, um, has this insight that maybe this bone could be used for something other than lying around on the ground and and, and used as a weapon and so forth the first weapon and, and yeah in a way of getting meat as well for the uh for the for their survival yeah because they were starving and so forth yes right right and earlier i mentioned about sort of the lack of irony at the very beginning but of course there is a great sense of humor that runs through the film uh you know uh, Leonard Rossiter is an amazing uh, comedy actor, and and I think he's used very well in the space station. And then you also have the uh, the zero gra- the, the zero gravity toilet, which is uh, one of my favorite shots. Well, that's the only really overt humor. By the way, before we get off of Dan Richter, though, uh, I want to say that the other key figure behind the believability of those man apes was a man named Stuart Freeborn. Who has, you know, his credit was makeup, but it should have been prosthetics, makeup and wizardry, you know, on the level of some of the great wizards of mythology, because he produced under after, you know, during a lot of pressure from Stanley Kubrick, lots and lots of pressure to improve his game and improve it further and improve it further. I describe all that in the book, obviously, Um, you know, he got to these skin tight hair suits, uh, and extraordinary uh, kind of mechanics of the mask in which the person inside could use his tongue, it was all men, young men, um, to uh, manipulate um, rubber bands (laughs) um, and springs and so forth and magnets and so forth um, to make the face of these man apes look truly alive. And this was all done way before CGI, way before anything like that. And so um, Stuart Freeborn also really deserved an Oscar, um, but they didn't even have Oscars for makeup at that time. Uh, Sorry, sorry. I'm wrong about that. I think that I think that Planet of the Apes got it for costume, something like that. I'm, you know, I'd have to dig around and see if that's really true what I just said. So. Yeah, I think I remember that the the Planet of the Apes won only because I remember Arthur C. Clarke commenting uh, they thought we used real apes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that that actually, it's an interesting comment and it's accurate as far as it goes, but I think that probably the category didn't exist yet. 
you know, there was visual effects right. and Stanley got that. And that's another story, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, Stanley had a team of people, uh, including Doug Trumbull, who it, it really should have been the team that got the Oscar, but Stanley got it himself. And uh, Doug Trumbull was very upset about that. Doug Trumbull, who did visual effects, one of the team that did visual effects and, and came up with um, so-called Stargate sequence, you know, this vaulting forward uh, in space and time effect produced in uh, in that sequence after the, the discovery spacecraft reaches Jupiter, there's this epic trip through space and time that the, the sole surviving astronaut goes through, the Odysseus astronaut, let's say, Bowman. Let's put a pin in that and come to it later, So, because it's, it's, it's a lovely, it, it, it's, a, it's a mini film in itself, that, that whole sequence. Definitely. Just to stick for a second, sort of almost chronologically with the film, the other thing that I remember learning from your book was the fact, the fact that they sort of send a team to Africa to film for the, for the front projection. That, that's such an amazing story. Yeah. So, um, you know, actually, it wasn't even filming. It was all stills. And the stills were meant for, for this front projection technique. That's true. Um, and uh, basically, you know, what happened was Stanley had been considering for a while the possibility of bringing a crew there and trying to film there. But it was just way too, way too hot, you know, to film there. And um, so he sent Andrew Birkin, Jane Birkin's brother, who had, was a young assistant of his, and a crew, including a photographer, a well-known French photographer and so on, to document desert landscapes. And then I tell the story. <laughs> I tell the story about the, the those distinctive trees, you know, which were protected under South African law. I mean, South Africa then controlled Namibia. It was the Namib Desert, the Kokorbon, Kokorbon trees. Uh, and uh, Stanley said, I want those trees, you know, in that landscape and Andrew said well they don't grow there they grow elsewhere and they're protected and Stanley said well I have faith in you <laughs> and, and uh, you know so Andrew organized a uh, little raiding party they had to cut through a wire fence they broke the law to uproot these protected trees take them across the desert in two big trucks at night there was a incident where one of the two trucks the trees in one of the two trucks caught fire uh, I mean, just extraordinary stuff happened. Then finally, they ended up with a few of the trees, and and you can see them. You can indeed see a couple tiny little trees in. I mean, they're 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 small in the frame in the front projection backdrops. I won't explain front projection projection backdrops here. It'll take too many words. But in, in any case, you can see them. Um, but what you when you see them larger, they were recreations of the trees made in in England. <laughs> At MGM Studios. Right. So that whole story, uh, that's, you know, when Andrew told me that story, I have to say, I that's when I knew, it's one of the times when I knew that it was really a good decision to write this book and take the time to do it, because I knew that there would be a lot of interesting stories about how they made that film. I wanted to look under the hood, and indeed I did, you know. Uh, that plus, you know, for example, Bill Weston and the stunts, and, and, and his story of doing stunts for the film, both of those stories I'm very proud of having excavated and written about, um, because I do believe, I have to say, that this film will be studied for hundreds of years, maybe even longer, and that material excavated now, you know, for example, we don't know what Shakespeare was thinking when he wrote his, you know, his plays. We just have the plays themselves. I'm hoping that some of these stories will go down through time and, uh, you know, these they will be known as backdrop to what produced this masterpiece. Because I do think that they will. And in, in one reason, though, they will be studying it in, in a, you know, 500 years. Or one reason it will still have power in 500 years 
is that there won't be there's not a lot of dialogue in some ancient language that we don't really understand anymore. It's all so visual. It's just pure visual storytelling. Well, I mean, I mean, you, you have that first African sequence, uh, the Dawn of Man sequence, and then you have the se- sequence of of the vo- the trip via the space station to the moon. And pretty much all of that, except except for the very short sort of uh, dialogue in the space station, is you know nonverbal. It's all it's it's the music of Strauss, and and it's the visuals. Exactly. Incidentally, involving the you know music of Strauss, the waltz music, and then the waltzing space station. Uh, there's a, there's another interesting kind of confluence of things there. I mean, one is that Vienna has a Ferris wheel. Uh, which is quite well known. It's, it was in The Third Man. You know, it's not as famous as The London Eye, but it's pretty famous in Central Europe. And Orson Welles was <laughs> filmed in it and all that. And, um, you know, if you go to Vienna to this day, I mean, if you went there right now, okay, Austria is closed down because of this stupid virus. But if it was running, you would be hearing waltz music being played while it turns, because that's what they do in Vienna, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, Stanley took, you know, his bride to Vienna, uh, Christiane, on their kind of proto honeymoon, and they had a great weekend in Vienna when they were filming in Munich for uh, Pads of Glory, and uh, they went on the Ferris wheel. You know, now who knows? Uh, who knows to what extent that permeated his consciousness overtly when he chose to use Strauss uh, for the space station turning? But it, it was probably there subconsciously. Um, and the the other point I would make about that wheel shaped space station, it came from the. Werner von Braun spaceflight vocabulary developed in, with Disney in the 50s. But Werner von Braun never gave credit for that elegant wheel-shaped space station to its actual originator, who was a Austro-Hungarian scientist named Hermann Patochnik Nordung, who was actually Slovenian ethnically, was born in Pula in what's now Croatia, and, and made a, a beautiful design in the late 20s. Well, exactly that kind of, you know, artificial gravity producing wheel-shaped space station. So again, Vienna being the capital of one of the two capitals of the Habsburg Empire. And then when you get to the moon, you have this amazing, like, well, amazing, uh, there's this, 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 uh, what was it, a briefing scene, really, which is... Which I I have to I mean I wrote an article uh, a couple of years ago about the dialogue in two thousand and one in my sort of like uh, I was I'm kind of interested in it because there's so little of it. Yeah, it must have been a sh- I was going to say it must have been a short article. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's I kind of like that. I really think the dialogue is 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 amazingly done because it has this. Yes, yes. Uh, well, go ahead. It has this. Well, I was going to say it has this sort of dryness in that that you know um, there's a there's a real dry sense of humour. Uh, the 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 mission sort of briefing is is very official speak and officialese, and and it's very robotic. And then when they're more informal in the shuttle that's going to visit the the monolith site, and they're talking about you know what sandwiches they're going to have, it's so sort of banal, and and it, I, I can't I can't. I don't think that's bad dialogue. I think that's really well-written dialogue because I think it's a, it's making these characters into just bureaucrats, essentially, no, so rather than true. adventurers. So, so true. And some of the uh, incorrect criticism of 2001 and 68 was that... Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? 
and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The actors were uh, too robotic and so forth, and that's entirely missing the point Stanley was making. By the way, I keep on calling him Stanley like I've met him, but I, get, I feel like I know him having written this book. But of course, if I met him, I'd say, Mr. Kubrick, it's such an honor. <laughs> In, in the late 60s, it was totally clear that the most robotic, meaning efficient human beings were being sent to space. Neil Armstrong, who landed on the moon, was had such a cool head that he managed to avoid what would have been certain death for almost anybody else in a Gemini mission in orbit of the Earth, I think it was 66, um, when the spacecraft started spinning wildly out of control to the point where they were going unconscious. And he had the presence of mind to figure out how to reverse it. He figured it out despite the fact they were spinning like that. And these are not people who you rely on for poetic descriptions of Earthrise. These are people who you rely on to get there and get back alive. And Stanley was, was riffing on all that. And he also, it uh, has to be said, uh, was presenting this extraordinary contrast between how the supercomputer and discovery and the astronauts, and there was a, an implicit sense that the humanity had in some senses been drained from the astronauts, if you, if you equate humanity with emotionalism of a certain kind, and that certainly that a type of humanity or certainly sentience had been inserted <laughs> into this uh, mainframe computer with the red eye you know, Cyclops eye. And and the last thing I'll say there about that is that, you know, we were talking about how the dialogue is very banal. The dialogue is very, you know, deracinated. The one place in the film where the dialogue is utterly powerful and critical is the most powerful single scene in the film, which is when Bowman is deprogramming Hal and Hal is pleading for his life. Now that is reliant on words. And, uh, and even though there aren't that many words, it's just an, one of those extraordinary sequences. When I was six years old, I was completely riveted and horrified. You know, it was just horror, right? Um, at that age, mm-hmm. I, I was intelligent enough to, to understand what was going on at age six. You know, this was a this was a creature, a being begging for its life, having committed various crimes. That was clear. <laughs> and a merciless human being doing what it had to do, what he had to do. Yeah, th- I mean, the line... My mind is going, I can feel it, Frank. I can feel it. It's that just that I can feel it is it's almost I think it's the only entity in the entire film who kind of admits to feelings. Yeah, it's so true. So true. So true. My mind is going. And it's also a classic 60s, 1968 line. You know, I mean, uh, to go back to the Beatles, you know, uh, Lennon, John Lennon was asked about 2001 and he said, 2001? I see it every every week. <laughs> you know, um, 
So there was that drug culture thing, which I don't think was conscious. I don't think it was conscious on the part of either Stanley or Arthur Clarke to put that in there. It was just kind of it was an artifact of the times, as was the star child at the end. Right, right. It was a sense of like the the stars aligning in terms of the science fiction culture and the drug culture sort of merging or overlapping at a certain point. Yeah, and and you know the post war rise of uh, computing power after the Enigma machine and you know um, British intelligence deploying um, you know uh, the best minds of of its generation to work on decoding a German coded signals and so on, which produced uh, computing, you know, proto-computing power that ended up, even by the late 60s, there was enough computing power so that we could send somebody to the moon, even though it seems ridiculously small now, we needed it to go to the moon, you know. When you get that cut as well to, to the Jupiter mission, I, I, I think that's what also one of my favorite uh, pieces of music in the film is the is the Russian ballet suite that you you, that you get coming in. As you as you see the the long track tracking shot of uh, um, discovery going across the screen, that whole that whole sequence, also in terms of your book in the making of the film, is, is where you have a lot of those let's say those bigger special effects shots happening, like the construction of the of the centrifuge to create that sense of uh, of a zero gravity or a. Or, well, it's not really zero gravity, but it's gravity in 360 degrees. It's artificial right, gravity. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the centrifuge set was extraordinarily expensive. It occupied, uh, it took a big percentage of the budget. Um, I don't remember what the percentage is right now. It's in my book, um, or at least an estimate. It was built by Vickers Armstrong, which is the, a, the aerospace company that had produced the Spitfire, iconic World War II Spitfire fighter aircraft. And... You know, it was the size of, it was four stories high, three stories high, something like that. In a big soundstage in Boreham Wood, it's, it, it rotated, uh, on a, you know, central pivot point or, or whatever you call it, um, you know, a hub. That's the word. And, um, you know, and the astronaut was always the, the, you know, the, the actor playing the astronaut was always at the bottom because we, you know, it had to be filmed in. <laughs> one earth gravity unfortunately but the cameras would then go around and and the cinematographer and the focus puller you know would be on this kind of rickety chair going round and round uh it was quite hazardous there, there was one escape hatch and a lot of film lights and a lot of flammable materials and it was just one of those classic examples of pushing things to the edge in film production yeah oh my god i don't i they'd have a job making it today with uh with the sort of uh, safety standards and and what have you probably probably rightly so you know? yeah <laughs> I mean, probably yeah. rightly so but luckily they have all the visual effect they have digital effects and all that so yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't be necessary, perhaps. And then you, I mean, one of the things I I watched the film uh, mo most recently. I saw, I was lucky enough to see the screening at Cannes when they showed it um, the, a new sort of print, and it was it was on the big screen at the Debussy Theatre. Christopher Nolan introduced it, and I remember. I was, it was amazing, and and it was the first time I'd seen it on the big screen, and it was the first time I'd seen it with the um you know with the overture and everything. And several observations that I'd never, the hundreds of times I'd seen the film previously, I, I hadn't to that extent noticed. One was the, the, how amazing the soundtrack is. Not the score, but the soundtrack. The, the sound of the breathing, the sound of the hissing of the, of the, of the spacecraft. And how in that sequence where David, where Bowman is, is locked 
outside. How, you know, it's almost like a Hitchcock sequence, that sequence. Yeah, and by the way, speaking of sound, um, uh, and another example of, of Kubrick's fearlessness, when the, when the shots cut to space, there is zero sound. Zero, zero, zero sound. An exterior shot, let's say, of the, you know, of Discovery and the space pod. Zero sound on the soundtrack. Nothing. That never happens anymore. And it almost never happened before, and up, up until silence, or back to silent movies, of course. And then you had a piano player or something. Because, you know, in a vacuum, there's no sound. Your ears will not hear anything and so forth. And, and uh, Stanley took that quite literally and didn't add a backdrop of ventilations or beeps or any of that stuff. Uh, so I don't, I don't know if you remember this, but when um, when Hal murders uh, uh, one of the two astronauts uh, by dip using a uh, one of the one of the um, space pods to clip his oxygen line, and and he's seen spinning off and struggling and trying to reattach the line. That's in utter silence uh, for part of the part of the sequence. Um, you only hear interior sounds of the spacecraft when. The, the shot cuts to Bowman at the controls in Discovery, you know. So uh, the horror is somehow compounded by the silence. And in that sense, I suppose it's got a Hitchcock element, yeah. I, I remember as well the scene where Bowman sort of blows the explosive bolts, which have been brilliantly sort of foreshadowed by you seeing the words danger explosive bolts on a couple of occasions earlier. And, and the sound comes in only when the, the chamber fills with air. Right, right. Brilliant. That's exactly how it would be. Actually, if you manage to survive that type of <laughs> uh, re-entry to some kind of oxygenated <laughs> environment, yeah. Um, going to the to to the something we mentioned earlier that I'd, I'd like to to just get your thoughts on that Stargate se- sequence was it's one of the the parts of the film I've seen the most often because when I had it on my video cassette that was the bit that I would play again and again and again just separate from the film almost uh and marvel at how it was done and never and never really understand how it was done well you know it was done in multiple different kinds of of uh, ways and different using different techniques and and I have to say I I I love Doug Trumbull and I know him and I've known him for quite a few years now and I you know I'm a big admirer of his um, and he had reason to be upset when the Oscar went only to Stanley but to look at it from Stanley's viewpoint um, a, a section or one type of shot done in that Stargate sequence was indeed conceived of and executed by Stanley in New York City before they even moved to the UK to film. And that involved tanks of liquids and and then dyes and inks deployed, you know, dropped into the liquid, black liquid, which would produce when shot and, and, you know, at high speed, producing slow motion and with bright lights necessary because of the high speed, high shutter speed, looked like nebulae in deep space. And that was based on work done for a black and white Canadian film called Universe, supervised uh, by Wally Gentleman, who had worked in the first part of 2001 and then quit under because he was uh, he was just tired of working with Stanley. It was based on that kind of breakthrough in how to produce deep space images that look the way we you know it was only. It was decades later that the Hubble Space Telescope showed us uh, what that looked like with complete clarity and in color, you know, in the 90s. But prior to that, we had grainy 
shots from Earth from the big observatories of nebulae uh, in in color, but they were they were very grainy. So Stanley conceived of that based on, as I said, based on the Canadian film, which was black and white, um, and shot it and breathe was breathing toxic fumes for uh, week after week. I heard this from Christian. He would come home with his eyes red, you know, from breathing all these noxious fumes from the solvents used and so on. He would show up at dawn having worked all night on that on those sequences. So. He put a lot of blood and sweat into the visual effects himself, and so that probably, to his mind at least, justified him accepting the the uh, Oscar. On the other hand, uh, Doug made made the point that he could have stated to the Academy, "Wait a sec, this was a team effort, and these people deserve it as well." And they, the Academy most likely would have listened. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that whole that that sequence as well is is really seems to push the film to what the what the film has already been doing which is as you were saying sort of visual storytelling for the most part and it put, pushes it to the absolute limit where you're going into levels of abstraction you know you recognize that we're on some sort of journey we're going towards something but you know story kind of breaks down into a form of visual poetry absolutely and you know doug gives stanley credit where credit is due in the sense that doug said that to me that you know one thing you don't get in that sequence is, you know, okay, at the very end, you get some reaction shots of the astronaut absolutely having a kind of a nervous breakdown. Freeze frame shots of his eyeball and so on. Um, very stylized at the end. But but in general, throughout the sequence, you don't have cutaways to the space pod in the, that environment. The audience goes on that trip. It's the audience's point of view. It's Bowman's point of view mm-hmm. implicitly. In any case, um, you know, the, the sense of subjectivity of the spacecraft or if I can put it that way, or the or, or the character is is tossed in favor of the experience of the audience. The audience is given the experience, so that was also a brilliant breakthrough, you know. I would say in 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 the, in the language of commercial cinema. I mean, experiments were being done in the '60s. All kinds of interesting stuff was being done in the '60s and low budget films. Um, there was some criticism also from Pauline Kael, that Kubrick and his people were ripping off experimental filmmakers and so on. I don't really buy that. You know, uh, let a million flowers bloom and so on. You know, mm-hmm. every, every, everybody influences everybody else. I don't think there was an overt ripping off of anybody there. Can I say one more thing, you know, just to rewind a bit, um, a moment to sure. my describing the astronaut spinning off into space and struggling to put his oxygen line back on. So another unsung hero of 2001 who I was delighted to bring to the fore in my book is a guy named Bill Weston, who's the stuntman who was up there on thin cables hanging three stories above a hard concrete floor at Borham Wood in 66 and 67 when they shot those sequences, um, spinning on a single wire with the camera directly below him so that if the wire snapped, he would be impaled on the camera and doing so in conditions that would certainly have resulted in, in uh, you know, the film, the, the, the shooting of the film being halted. And, and, and these days, Stanley never could have gotten away with it because Weston came to Stanley and said, hey, you know, um, I'm not getting enough air uh, up there and I need you. I, I want to punch some holes in the helmet so I can breathe better. And Stanley refused. And he was given a little bottle of oxygen, which lasted for about 12 minutes and didn't even have uh, a way to there was no way to get the carbon dioxide that he that Bill was exhaling uh, out of the helmet. You know, and so Weston was hanging upside down or sideways way above this concrete floor with oxygen feeding in for only 12 minutes um, during sequences that sometimes required 
20 minutes or half an hour, uh, you know, he would lose the oxygen while they were setting up and then be without oxygen. And, and he passed out numerous times. I tell the story in, in the book of, of that one time when he passed out and he came to and he went off looking for Stanley because he was going to give him a, a real beating. <laughs> and, and Stanley fled this fled the studio and wasn't seen for three days and then uh, offered uh, through intermediaries offered Bill uh, the best dressing room and, you know, beer in the fridge and all kinds of stuff. And I should say Weston, Weston had been a mercenary in South Africa and was a guy who you don't you didn't want him coming after you with the intention of beating you up. You certainly didn't want that. So um, but Weston, having said all that, Weston, there's a great quote in my book where Weston says, you know, and then he, he by the way, he then continued working. He did a bunch of Bond films. He did all kinds of stuff. And, he, and, and in the end, when he was being interviewed much, much, much later uh, by Dave Larson, who's a guy who I worked with, um, who I admire greatly, who has been researching 2001 for half of his life. Um, gave me access to some of the interviews he gave, he made, including with Bill Weston. Weston said um, uh, to Dave, you know, in the end, the film he was proudest of was 2001. After all that. I mean, th that's the thing is, I think it's the one Stanley Kubrick film where everything is on the screen. All that perfection, all that mania, all that obsession. It's really on the screen. I mean, you, you, you know, Barry Lyndon, you, you could say, well, it's beautiful and all the rest of it, but it doesn't—it doesn't need to necessarily have gone to such extremes to get that. Whereas with two thousand and one, you think there's no real other way of, of of making that movie. I agree. I agree. Certainly with the technology uh, that they had then, and of course they invented a lot of it. I mean, they 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 developed it from the ground up. I mean, it was an R and D project. Two thousand and one was a research and development project funded by MGM. Two thousand and one involved um, what contemporary film producers would definitely consider unnecessary amounts of research. Um, pilgrimages to MIT to talk to Marvin Minsky about artificial intelligence, um, consulting with IBM uh, and, uh, you know, and, and, and Bell Labs about flat screen technologies and what would a spacecraft look like in the year 2001? What do you think? Give us our, your best guess, best idea. And then the best people in the field did that. In exchange for some product placement, you know, they were really, uh, you know, hard science fiction is a genre characterized by its adherence to what we really know. And, and Arthur Clarke uh, and, and Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein, but especially Asimov and Clarke were the epitome of hard science fiction. It had to be uh, something true to what physics would could allow, what would, according to our, you know, the understanding of the time. And um and so that technique was used and deployed. That was a that was the kind of thing Stanley understood intuitively because he was that kind of geek himself. You know, so he and Arthur mm. did extensive research, deployed various, um, you know, other people to do it for them as well and so on. So you see that in every frame, you know. I mean, those flat screens, for example, if you compare 2001's flat screens to Alien, which was shot a decade later, which had CRT monitors and Nostromo, you see the difference of approach between those two films right there. Because 2001 looks more futuristic to this day than Nostromo. I love Alien, don't get me wrong, but it was... You know, it was advice from IBM, you know, that you would have flat screens everywhere and that there should be no sign of machinery behind the screens that would just be flat screens all over the cockpit and so on. And that advice produced that futuristic 
look. It looks very contemporary now, let's say. Yeah, I mean, you even have, have like an iPad, you know, uh, which is uh, yes. st- stunning. Yes, and by the way, on, uh, another little thing that I uncovered, which had me shaking my head, is that one of the things that was supposed to be on the, the that iPad-like device, which had IBM on it, incidentally, and which was mounted permanently to the table that it seemed to be just dropped on top of, and below the table was a 16-millimeter projector, two, two different 16-millimeter projectors projecting content onto the ground glass of that seemingly just casually placed on the table iPad-like device. One, one of, you know, what you see in the film is a BBC uh, interview with the astronauts, right? But there's another form of content that they worked up, and that was with permission from the New York Times, and that was an online newspaper. And if that had been used, and it was the New York Times, so if that had been used just for one shot for just five seconds, we would be saying today that 2001, the, the internet was invented by... 2000 by Stanley Kubrick and his team, you know. Amazing. That's amazing. And I mean, that level of detail, level of work, you can kind of see in the way, I mean, you mentioned Alien afterwards as well, but 2001 really just stands out like a colossus. You know, there's there's nothing beforehand that looks anything like it. And then even afterwards, um, you know, I, I watch, as I say, I watched it on the big screen a couple of years back and it stands up better than well than than something like avatar will stand up or of all the star wars prequels you know which which yeah i know it's a different genre and everything but but in terms of just creating co- convincing you know uh versions of space i wouldn't say that's a different genre um, even star wars i mean those films those films would not have been possible avatar and that whole genre was the origin the origin of that genre, as I said earlier, was 2001 Space Odyssey and its commercial success in 1968, mm. you know, um, and and to the credit of all those directors, I mean, Cameron, Lucas, uh, you name it, Spielberg, they all acknowledge. So uh, alien director, you know, um, really? yeah, Scott, Scott, um, you know, they all acknowledge that Kubrick is just the master, you know, I mean, that, that they've all been trying Christopher Nolan. They've all been trying to come up with something as extraordinary as 2001. And that's great because that means that there's a lot of very interesting big budget sci-fi out there. Um, I can't say that I've been uh, particularly convinced that any of it is as great as 2001. But of course, I saw it at age six and it blew my mind and it changed my life. So, what you know, I'm not exactly, you know, I'm kind of not, uh, I don't have any you know, objectivity in that regard. As my son, my 20-year-old son would point out, <laughs> who loves Christopher Nolan. Right. Well, yeah, we we, we, we all do. Um, um, but I mean, even out even outside of that uh, science fiction, I, you know, I watch films, art house films, which I see have have massive influences from Kubrick. Whether it's you know Terence Malick to Gaspar Noé to uh, Yorgos Lanthimos, who made the favorite, but his his sort of earlier films are, are very you know have a, have a real Kubrick sheen to them. Shall I, should I say? By the way, I worked on Tree of Life, and I'm in the credits of Tree of Life. I supervised some visual effects sequences in Tree of Life, um, and I met Doug Trumbull. I met Doug Trumbull through that production, just to give a sense of how my life trajectory, you know, has been impacted by having seen 2001 at age six. And um, I, you know, absolutely, you're right. By the way, I would say something else, though, about science fiction, the science fiction film genre 
and the 60s. Even before 2001, there were masterpieces of sci-fi being produced um, that are comparable in their, let's say, artistic integrity. I'm referring to Alphaville by Godard, um, you know, um, uh, I'm referring to, um, what's the um, fantastic uh, film, which is all stills, you know, um, except for one moving shot. Oh, Sans Soleil. Uh, no, not Sans Soleil. That's Chris Marker, but it is Chris Marker, and it's his, his that, you know, it's uh, La Jetée. Uh, yeah, so both both La Jetée and Alphaville are low budget, very low budget French sci-fi movies. Both of them predate Kubrick, and they took a different route to sci-fi uh, glory. Let's say um, they're both dystopian meditations on. This dystopian future in which a supercomputer, in the case of Alphaville, is controlling human destiny, you know. But they didn't even try to have visual effects comparable to, uh, I mean, of course, they couldn't be comparable to 2001. It hadn't been made yet. You know, it's just a different approach. Having sort of, as you say, you, 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 you don't need to see 2001 anymore because it's in your head, you've having worked on it so much. Uh, what, what was the biggest thing that through that sort of incredible close attention and through that archival work that you've done, what was the thing that perhaps changed your opinion most in terms of either Kubrick or, or the film itself? Huh, see, let's see if I can think of one thing. I mean, it was just a kind of a accretion of multiple stories, accretion, an accretion right. of many, many stories uh, informing me about the uh, thinking behind 2001, the logic behind it, the ideas behind it, the techniques required to make it. Um, you know, I don't know if there's, I mean, we, we've covered a number of those stories today, you know. There was, so I can't really isolate one thing. There are a couple more stories I would tell you, though. So one of them concerns, we, we were talking about the you know, dawn of man, not, excuse me, we were talking about the Stargate sequence, you know, the trip sequence between the arrival at Jupiter and then the uh, resurrection of the astronaut and so on. One component of that Stargate sequence, you know, you had the, the liquids in suspension aspect with the nebulae blooming in deep space. Then you have the um, slit scan material of these extraordinary um, landscapes zooming at the viewer, you know, sometimes with shapes floating above, you know, which really has a, you know, a connection to abstract art and so forth. But then you also have these kind of uh, color inverted landscape shots from aerial uh, from helicopters or airplanes, you know, um, which, you know, might look it's the one part of the sequence that might look a little bit dated today, although I still like it. Um, and I think that the film just holds up. But one part, one type of that shot, I mean, a lot of it was shot by Birkin uh, in a helicopter over Scotland, over northern Scotland. And th that's a lot of what you see. And then they did all the kinds of you know, stuff to the to the footage uh, at MGM. But another uh, story, which I learned, it was about Robert Gaffney, a cinematographer who had worked with Kubrick on Dr. Strangelove and who was um, tasked by Kubrick from London with getting shots of Arizona Monument Valley from a, from a plane for that same sequence. And he, you know, did so, but um, almost lost his life because um, he took off in a Cessna, you know, a little single engine plane at sunrise this being dawn of man <laughs> oh no sorry it's not the dawn of man excuse me i'm getting confused he took off at sunrise because that's the best time that and sunset are the best times to shoot that was exactly when this updraft came whooshing across the desert in arizona and shooting up this um ridge you know that he had to fly over in order to shoot 
uh, you know, the Monument Valley object. And the plane spun up out of control and they almost died, you know. So that's just another example of near-death experience, Bill Weston being another, yeah. uh, you know, in the making of the film, pushing the edge, pushing everything to the very edge of possibility. I don't know if it's a, it's not a single story reveal, you know, that changed my entire view of the film. That That's hard to come up with. I, I guess what I, I meant is sort of does... It, you know, especially in terms of Kubrick's personality, do you do you find that after you know spending so long with the man and going through all these stories, do you, d does your admiration grow, or or do you do you feel more ambivalent because of the sacrifices that he sort of forced on other people and the the way other people might have been put at risk, for instance? Or how 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 do you feel? Yeah, that's a very different question, and and my admiration only grew. Uh, I, I have to say, I benefited greatly from getting to know. Chris Christiane Kubrick, his widow. Mm. And she trusted me uh, and told me all kinds of very intimate stories, including about his near nervous breakdown on the night of the premiere in New York. Um, she also told me that he would come back to the, from the studio from long, long, long days at the studio, gripped by vast self-doubt and, you know, confessing to her that he didn't have the slightest idea of what he was going to do and how he was going to bring the film off and that, it, that he was overwhelmed and, and it was a mess and it wasn't going to work and so on. And you know, he would say things like, how could I have criticized so-and-so and so-and-so other directors? You know, I'm not even nearly as good as they are. I, you know, she, and then he, then he would say, she would say to him, Stanley, 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 hey, you're tired. Make yourself, let's get you a hamburger. <laughs> um, and, you know, you're doing great work and so on. So my, uh, and also another thing I'd say about Kubrick, he could be cruel. Earlier I said, you know, that happened in later films. I mean, there, there, he could be cruel to some, if actors didn't forget, didn't remember their lines, woe betide those actors, they would be the subject of Stanley's wrath and, and sometimes hazing. But in general, everybody, he was the first guy there and the last to leave. He was not somebody who issued instructions from afar, you know, and, and those who survived and didn't quit because it was too much work or it was too difficult, respected him to a person. You know, Doug Trumbull had his differences with Stanley, but Doug had tears in his eyes when he described going to the funeral, the funeral service for Stanley. Um, and he said, I loved him and my life was changed by him and so forth. Uh, there was love for the guy and admiration. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I, it's fascinating to hear that, that, that those stories of self-doubt as well, because we, we get so used to the monolith and the, the, the monolith, the, no pun intended, of the uh, of, of that sort of auteur genius that, that it, it's it's sort of refreshing and yet also unsurprising to actually hear those people went home at night and 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 had the same crises that we all have. Well, certainly Stanley did, but I, I do have actually a scene that I wanted to maybe quote to you in this podcast because I just found it so kind of moving and interesting. And it was, the scene is, it's in my book, and Roger Karras and Jeffrey Unsworth, the director of photography, highly experienced director of photography who was shooting the film, went off for lunch at the studio uh, in Boreham Wood one day, and, and Karras told this story. And um, they were walking, you know, it was a, it's a very big studio uh, set up with many buildings, and it was, you know, 10-minute walk, 15-minute walk to the cafeteria. And they're walking there, and, and Unsworth was uncharacteristically silent. And finally, uh, Roger Karras, who was the vice president of Stanley's two production um, you know, uh, outfits, one in the U.S. and one in the U.K., said, Jeffrey, why are you so deeply contemplative? Unsworth said to Roger Karras, 
Do you know, Roger, if anyone had told me six months ago that I had anything of any substance to learn about my profession at this stage of the game, I would have told them they were mad. I've been a top British cinematographer, a top man for 25 years, though. And in fact, though I have learned. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay, so this I, I, I quoted this wrong. A top man for 25 years. In fact, though, I have learned more about my profession from that boy in there in the last six months than I have in the previous 25 years. He is an absolute genius. He knows more about the mechanics of optics and the chemistry of photography than anyone who's ever lived. Are you aware of this? Wow. And so, you know, um, I quoted that. I got it from Karis. There was no other. Those, those were the only two people there. And, and Unsworth is dead. And actually, Karis is dead, too. But it was from an interview with him. And um, I, you know, some I got very good reviews for my book. But there were a couple people who said, well, there's a bit of hero worship going on here between Benson and Kubrick. And, I, you know, I say that's not the case. I, I, I totally deny that. And I have a bunch of material in there that indicates a negative side to the man. But I wanted to put that in there because, yes, you have this auteur theory. And, yes, you have, uh, 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 let's say, an industry-wide respect for Kubrick for what he achieved. But it was founded on something. It was founded on actual knowledge. You know, the guy was a photographer for uh, Look magazine before he even got into film. He really knew his stuff. He learned it. You know, the front projection in uh, Dawn of Man was a result of him doing his research himself about what was possible. So anyway, I wanted to tell that story. Um, maybe I can re-record that section so it doesn't have that bump in the middle later. So you can clip that in. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure thing. See, I have a little bit of that perfectionism in me as well. Uh, there you go. Uh, well, uh, well, we'll do about 50 takes, I think, before, we, uh, before we're really happy for it. <laughs> yeah, we don't have to do it. We don't have to re-record. Uh, yes. I, I, I want to ask a, a book recommendation for you, because this podcast is all about recommending and, and promoting film books and film writers such as yourself. So what, what book would you recommend to our, to our listeners? Uh, I would recommend a book that totally blew my mind this year. It is not about filmmaking. It's by a Chilean writer named Benjamin Labatut, L-A-B-A-T-U-T. And in English translation, the title is When We Cease to Understand the World. It's an extraordinary um, fusion of literary nonfiction, which gradually morphs into ever more surreal fiction. And it's about some of the great scientists of the 20th century and how their findings and results uh, had, to put it mildly, double, you know, dialectical implications and, and um, two sides to them. Um, and it's, you know, it is like reading a film, by the way, so that in that sense, it's filmic. It's mm. extraordinary success uh, extraordinarily successful piece of writing it's not even that long it just kind of blows you away i read it in one sitting i've, I've read it as well i read it uh, uh, earlier this year it's an extraordinary book and it also sort of it does that thing of making really complicated scientific ideas sort of emotionally present you know you feel that that this is a version of reality that that has something to say about about our inner lives as well as how we understand the, the universe Absolutely. Absolutely. So in that sense, it also resonates with 2001, I would say. But I'm impressed that you read it. Well done, sir. Uh, no, <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, uh, well, as you can tell from this podcast, I'm, uh, I'm, I love my books. <laughs> I love my movies and I love my books. Well, thanks so much for reaching out. It was for me a 
great pleasure to be able to talk about this film. Uh, and it's been a while since I did uh, any kind of uh, interview or discussion about 2001. And, uh, you know, it's nice to think about triumphant successes in art and literature at a time when we're looking at another long winter coming up. And, you know, triumphant successes in art and literature are what gets us through dark times, I would say. I totally agree. I totally agree. That and any victory by Liverpool Football Club are the, <laughs> are the shining lights. Although uh, other listeners may want to drop in and the, a name of another football club or another sport entirely in that moment. And I think we should congratulate ourselves as well on having an entire conversation about 2000 on a space odyssey in Stanley Kubrick without once mentioning the moon landing conspiracy theory. Oh, uh, you know, if you want to get into that, we can. I mean, you know, it's so ludicrous. It's just so patently ridiculous that um, I just, you know, try to bat that one aside. I mean, you know, for example, one of the conspiracy theories seems to be grounded on the fact that Stanley Kubrick shot 2001 the year before the moon landing. Um, you know, but if you look at the aesthetics of the moon uh, in 2001, if you look at the fact that you can see stars in the sky in 2001, that it's jagged topography on the moon in 2001, just the way they shot the moon, you know, it is utterly different from what we saw from the moon. And there are reasons for that. You know, the reasons you don't see stars in the sky in the Apollo footage is that you had bright, glaring sunlight on the surface of the moon during uh, during those landings and, and during the space, the walks, the moonwalks and so on. And that was, of course, not accidental. And um, the only time you're going to see stars from the lunar surface, even though there's no atmosphere, is if you, you, I guess, if you face away from the sun and squint, you might see a few stars. But, um, you know, it's not just your pupils that would be contracted in that bright sunlight, but also a camera aperture has to be as well. So, and you know, and then the, the whole thing is just ridiculous. I mean, you can you can point a laser from Earth at those landing sites and you will get a, a reflection from the little laser reflectors they put on those things. So what what is what are those? I mean, is that how does that jive with that those conspiracies not to mention that the lunar reconnaissance orbiter has been orbiting the moon nasa mission and has photographed the landing sites well i guess that's also fake i mean give me a break can i just ask uh, one one further question actually what did uh, the, the your your shots on uh, tree of life what what were those what can you tell us a little bit about those well so terry reached out to me having seen a number of my books um uh, I have a couple in particular that were relevant to Tree of Life. One of them was looking at the solar system and looking at the history of photography of the solar system and creating large format planetary landscapes from raw interplanetary mission data, image data. Uh, and then another was called Far Out, and it's it, it was essentially picking up where the first one left off, meaning not the solar system, but everything else. And it was jammed with extremely uh, high quality images from uh, major terrestrial observatories, the Hubble, other space telescopes, etc. And both of those were, let's say, edited filmically. I mean, I take illustrated books very seriously as a genre. I don't consider them coffee table books and just, you know, diversions for bourgeois people. Um, you know, they are, uh, especially working with Abrams, you know, which has extremely high production quality that printed stochastically, for example. You know, uh, I took it, I took them seriously as uh, artworks in themselves. And so, that resonated with Terry, and he reached out to me and proposed that we collaborate on Tree of Life. We made a deal, an arrangement. I was actually living in Europe at the time in Slovenia. And, uh, you know, we did a lot of work together. I ended up supervising. Uh, I was advising, but I was. I also supervised several sequences. One of them was, for example, uh, to get granular, um, two moons in orbit of Jupiter. 
And that was all based on uh, material I I had image processed, raw material image processed and mosaic from uh, the Cassini flyby. Mm-hmm. You know, the, when Cassini flew by in the year 2001, I might add, on its way to Saturn, um, I used that data for that sequence. And and by the way, we produced that sequence at double negative in London. I, I was I was in London. I, had, I flew to London to work with double negative on that. Amazing. Wow. Listen, you've been so generous with your time, Michael, and I really appreciate it. I really appreciate this conversation. I absolutely loved the book and, and would recommend anybody who loves Stanley Kubrick or loves 2001. You know, there's so much in there. It's such a treasure of, of, of material and stories, some of which we've touched on, but, but there are so many more in there. Well worth it. Well, thank you so much, John. It was really a pleasure for me too. And uh, I hope we can keep up a connection and talk about other films at other times. that was my conversation with Michael Benson Uh, I hope you enjoyed it Uh, I was fascinated by uh, what Michael had to say not only about Stanley Kubrick but also about Terence Malick towards the end some real interesting facts and and stories and witness statements that Michael has managed to 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 gather together in his in his wonderful book Space Odyssey Stanley Kubrick Arthur C. Clarke and the Making of a Masterpiece his recommended book was is a a book by Chilean author Benjamin Labatute Uh, When We Cease to Understand the World, and I've read this also, um, one of my favourite books of last year, so also highly recommended. Yeah, uh, a brilliant, brilliant read. Really, really deep, really, really interesting and quite funny at times as well. So uh, that's all for uh, Writers on Film uh, this week. Uh, Next week we'll be talking to Ghibliotech. So please remember to tune in. Thanks very much to Elliot Atkins for the music. Thank you, Ali Howard, for the artwork. And um, have a really good Christmas, a really good break. You deserve it. I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 